two experts, one hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between experts on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to The Flip Side. I'm Jeff Melley, the head of research at Barclays, and I'm speaking today with James C. Spindler, the Mark L. Hart Endowed Chair in Corporate and Securities Law at the University of Texas Law School. He's also a professor at the McComb School of Business. Thanks for joining me today, James. Thanks for having me. All right. Today, we're going to talk about corporate purpose. That's the objective that corporations set out to achieve. Now, many people believe that corporations are currently too focused on their shareholders and motivated in part by some recent corporate scandals, like the role big pharma companies played in the opioid crisis. Uh, The proponents of this view think that we would get better outcomes if corporations took into consideration a broader set of stakeholders. Yes, that's right. Um, There are some concrete policy proposals currently out there right now uh, that are intended to make this a reality. And they would do that by changing who governs corporations Uh, primarily by changing the membership of the board of directors. So as an example, as a candidate for president, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren proposed a law mandating that labor be represented on the boards of large corporations. And this is not a far-fetched or unprecedented proposal. Germany has a similar system to what was proposed in the Accountable Capitalism Act. And so others have proposed rules mandating for board diversity. So NASDAQ currently has such a uh, proposal that's currently undergoing SEC comment. Uh, California enacted such a law requiring diversity on its boards. However, these things can be contentious. Uh, One example of that is that the California law was recently struck down on equal protection grounds. Yeah, you know, James, even more recently, the SEC proposed new requirements for climate-related disclosures for public companies in the U.S., And one of the motivations for that proposal is to facilitate ESG investing, which is really all about convincing or forcing corporations to consider non-financial factors alongside all the traditional business metrics they usually consider when they're making decisions. Yes, and the SEC proposal is controversial too. Uh, Some of this criticism is technical, like whether the SEC actually has the authority to do this. Uh, some of the opposition is is more substantive. Um, and so what we're seeing is that there's substantial factions on both sides of these issues. All right, well, let's let's start with the traditional view of corporate purpose, and then we can talk about how this might change. So the traditional view for corporate purpose is shareholder maximization. This was a view that was first articulated by Milton Friedman in 1970. He wrote, quote, the social responsibility of a business is to increase its profits. I think that's like a pretty easy concept. And I think it's also aligned with how most people out there would just sort of naturally think about the role of a corporation. It exists to make as much money as possible. Yeah, and there's economic support for this view as well. Um, And that's essentially based on the fact that shareholders are what we would call the residual claimants. Uh, And what that means is that to the extent that the value of a corporation goes up or down in value, we would expect that shareholders are the ones that enjoy those gains or or bear those losses. Um, At least that's true for for a solvent corporation. Once you have an insolvent corporation, those gains and losses are probably going to be borne by by somebody else. Now, just to be clear... When we talk about maximizing shareholder value, that doesn't mean you know companies should uh, dump mercury in a reservoir if that helps them make more money. It really means maximizing shareholder value in the context of the applicable laws and regulations that govern how corporations behave. So the idea is 
society sets guardrails and those define sort of the acceptable realm of behavior. And then corporations maximize shareholder value conditional on staying within those boundaries. And those rules are really everywhere around us. Some are very widely applicable. We might look at things like minimum wage laws, uh, workplace safety laws that are designed to force companies to behave in a certain way with regard to their workers. You can look at things like the tort system, which generally say that if you negligently injure folks, uh, you have to pay for it. That applies to corporations too. Uh, and then we have industry-specific rules as well, especially where we think we have particularly dangerous or sensitive industries, uh, such as in the realm of environmental regulation or banking regulation. So James, there, I think this is the traditional view for a reason. I mean, there's a lot of benefits of this approach. I think one of them is that the directive for corporations is pretty easy to follow. You obey the rules, but otherwise go out there and make money. Uh, the guardrails, so to speak, they're determined determined by regulators and policymakers, that means that they apply widely and they're not subjective. So when I say they apply widely, it means every corporation is subject to exactly the same rules. They don't decide which rules are going to follow or tweak them in some way. They're all sort of, you know, operating under the same system um, and, then, and then left to compete with each other. And, and I guess then, of course, th there's also the notion that the corporations themselves aren't the ones who devise the rules. Society devises, devises the rules, decides what's okay and what's not okay. And we don't leave it up to the entity who's going to either make more or less money as a result of the rules. And that sounds actually like kind of a clean system. So what's the problem here? Well, maybe there's not a problem. Um, you know, after all, the U.S. does have a large and successful corporate sector. The residual claimant theory is a pretty good theory. Again, so long as you have solvent uh, corporations and as long as you have good rules, shareholders ought to be internalizing the, the costs and benefits of corporate activity. And, and that ought to lead to maximizing overall social welfare. But a key component of this is that corporations really will be internalizing all these costs and benefits, and that does rely in part on government setting the right guardrails. So that's what stops corporations from making money in ways that cause harm to society. Uh, and one thing we've seen recently is that it's not clear that our system is particularly good at keeping up with corporations. We think when we look at firms in the financial sector or the energy sector that these firms maybe know their business better than the government does. And in short, they might have more resources. They might even be smarter than the folks at government that are setting the regulations. Um, if you're relying on the legislature to pass laws, that takes time. If you're relying on regulatory agencies to pass regulations, they have limited budgets and limited personnel. Uh, so the first company that figures out it can find a loophole and it can, for instance, make money dumping mercury in a reservoir, well, then the prediction is that that company that's figured out that loophole is going to exploit it. Uh, and then only later, perhaps, government or regulators figure out that something bad has happened. And that's when the rules adjust. So if you look, for instance, at the financial sector or banking uh, more particularly, which is an area that I work in, uh, you see that a lot of these rules and laws come about after something really bad has happened. So after the Great Depression, uh, we get a lot of our modern banking law and a lot of our modern securities law. Uh, same thing when you look at the financial recession in 2007, 2008, uh, we get all sorts of law that's designed to prevent problems like that occurring, but we don't get those rules until those big meltdowns have actually occurred. Yeah, that's interesting because I can think of some other examples as well in other industries. So one is we've had a rise in gig economy workers, right, with all the companies 
that um, that use workers as sort of contractors on a job by job basis rather than making them full time employees. And California recently proposed a law that would have effectively required a lot of those workers to be treated like full-time employees. Um, I guess under the notion that maybe these companies were effectively relying on the government to provide the sorts of things like uh, uh, you know, unemployment insurance or support during downturns that a company would, would normally be expected to apply to their full-time employees. Um, but that law didn't get passed. It was up for referendum and was rejected. Um, you've seen uh, modern problems around data privacy as another example where, you know, big tech companies have obviously a lot of incentives to make money off of all the data that they capture as people use their uh, their products. Uh, but there's a lot of concern about whether that use maybe violates people's privacy in some way that we're uncomfortable with as a society, but we're struggling to craft the laws that address that. Um, and I guess my favorite example, going back to a, a flip side episode uh, a few months ago, is the carbon tax. Um, you know, the carbon tax was first proposed in the United States in 1973. That's almost 50 years ago. Subsequent to its first proposal, we've now emitted 50 years worth of carbon without taxing it, um, despite, I think, you know, a large consensus that. Uh, that that releasing carbon into the atmosphere um, has costs for society. Um, I guess another sort of challenge is this notion that whether or not corporations actually have a say in the rules. You know, there's a big concern about regulatory capture, whether it's through lobbying or sort of a revolving door of regulators moving into the corporate sector after their stint in the government, um, that there's sort of channels through which corporations can, in fact, influence the rules. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. You know, as these industries become more and more technical, uh, the only folks that can write meaningful rules and regulations to govern them are industry insiders. So we, we, we really do have this problem. And even many of our government regulatory agencies do rely on the revolving door just to have personnel that are capable of dealing with these industries. So, you know, if the basic problem is that you think corporations are smarter than the government, then perhaps one solution is to try and give corporations better incentives so that they'll do the right thing on their own uh, and govern themselves in a way that's maybe more pro-social. And that, I think, is part of the motivation behind stakeholder capitalism. The idea is that if you can affect the composition of the decision-making body at these entities, that they will consider the interests of other stakeholders, maybe society at large, and not just the shareholder. And so then you can kind of cut out the government middleman of designing the guardrails, uh, so to speak, um, when they're deciding what they do. And so, you know, there's particular examples of this that people point to. Uh, so uh, AOC, for instance, has made a recent statement about the importance of having worker representation in the governance of companies. So if you have worker representation on the boards of these companies or they're taking into account worker interests through a conscious process, maybe then we don't need to worry as much about writing regulations that are designed to protect workers. So that's interesting. And I think you mentioned even a, a, a constituency as broad as society, right? So employees are obviously a constituency of a company. Um, customers probably as another constituency. You think about my data privacy example, that's really more focused about the customers of a, of a company. Um, but you mentioned society, and I think that's interesting. It's quite broad, obviously. But you could look at even the 2016 election and see 
the criticism that, for example, Facebook received for not, you know, say, protecting American democracy because it was allowing inaccurate political advertising uh, through its system. And you could see that that the kinds of concerns we're talking about can be very narrow, like the people who show up in your building every day. And they can even be as broad as like our entire political system. So I think that is a that is a serious and profound criticism. If you believe that a company like Facebook is able to sway the election, um, that's a that's a serious concern, and it does implicate the ability of government to effectively govern. If you think that democracy itself is is up for up for grabs in this sense, um, so this does kind of lead to the point of whether corporate interests are actually opposed to societal interests, and and this is something something that a lot of these proposals are somewhat squishy on. Um, many of these proponents of whether it be ESG or diversity on boards or uh, labor representation as, as with the Accountable Capitalism Act, they tend to conflate the, the concept of society's interests in long-term profits. So much of what you will hear with regard to these stakeholder capitalism proposals is that what this really does is that this forces the company to focus on lo the long-term and that in the long term, this type of focus will, in fact, be better for the corporation and its shareholders and society. Um, but that's kind of a rosy view of things. And there are probably many cases where what's good for the corporation, if the guardrails aren't there, just aren't good for society. So dumping mercury in the river would be a, a prototypical example of such a case. And so if you really take stakeholder capitalism seriously, then what that means is a trade-off between uh, shareholder wealth welfare, the productivity of the corporation, and the welfare of other stakeholders out there in society. Yeah, I agree that this is a point of confusion and I think a point of contention. Um, so for example, some big asset managers out there have started to push companies towards a more pro-social direction. Um, and, and I think when they speak about it, they do sometimes confuse whether this is really what's truly in the interest of shareholders in the long run, or is it a, a sacrifice or a trade-off between the welfare of shareholders and other stakeholders? Um, and I think that that uh, actually, in some cases, they've received a backlash, uh, in part from shareholders, maybe, and also from, from sort of commentators who believe that the current corporate purpose is is a good one and is um, and is very productive. Um, and so I, I do think that you really have to figure out, are you talking about activity that truly sacrifices shareholder welfare for some broader objective. That's really stakeholder capitalism. The the other bit, like it's really better for you, you just don't realize it, to take a longer term view. That's just like a different take on the traditional view, right? It's like saying you're executing your traditional mandate, but you're not doing it in the right way. Um, and I think what we what we're really talking about here is when the interests of shareholders and stakeholders are not aligned. Yeah. If 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 it's a win-win for everyone, then it's an easy decision. And this makes everyone better off, and there's there's really no reason to debate it. But that's probably uh, not true, uh, and it's certainly not true in every every case, right? Um, but that said, there has been a backlash to some extent against these stakeholder capitalism initiatives, as we've come to realize that there are probably significant costs associated with it and significant trade-offs. Now that said, uh, just in the course of the past five or 10 years, I think stakeholder capitalism has gone from something of a fringe view in corporate America to being something that's being taken very, very seriously. 
you see that with ESG, uh, you see that uh, just with the the dialogue that's occurring today. You know, uh, James, it sounds sort of aspirational to me that we can just convince corporations that this is important, and then they're going to embark on this shift in their purpose. Um, certainly, in in a prior flip side, I I was a bit of a skeptic on the long term implications of ESG investing on corporate behavior. I mean, in the end, corporations are operated by representatives of shareholders. So ultimately, shareholder welfare is the main objective. So how can you practically embed stakeholder concerns into corporate decision making? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and it's and it's true. As long as you leave the same shareholders in charge, we wouldn't expect very much to change. And that's where some of these stakeholder proposals have, I think, an innovative concept that has some promise to actually do something. And that's by actually changing the composition of the board of directors. Um, and there's various ways of doing that. The diversity proposals would seek to simply make boards of directors more diverse, um, probably disrupts the way that boards of directors are chosen. The inclusion mandates, such as the Accountable Capitalism Act, would actually have directors that are elected by by labor and therefore are accountable to labor to some extent. Uh, and so once you've done this, you've essentially changed the composition of the people that sit around the board of directors table. Um, and a seat at the board of directors table is obviously an important thing. Um, it's probably worth something in particular, right? So it's, 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 you could conceive of it as being a property right uh, of sorts. You have the power to hold up board actions. You have the ability to participate in deliberations and decision-making. Uh, there's a potential for log rolling. Uh, it probably facilitates efficient contracting. So for instance, if you have employee representatives on the board, they can strike a deal with management in some way or another that they wouldn't have been able to do without that board seat. You know, at first glance to me, this seems like swapping one owner for another. Like I, I, I take your point that it is like a property right, right? It's like a property right over the corporation. Um, and so I can see why, for example, putting labor on the board, you might take some of what is currently shareholder value and you effectively award it to that other stakeholder, in that case, labor. Maybe you would uh, get higher wages or you would uh, get increased pensions coming at a shareholder expense. But what I don't see is how that actually changes corporate behavior. Okay, we're splitting the pie a little bit differently, but it would strike me that at least at first pass, everybody who's sitting around the table still wants the pie to be as big as possible. That's certainly one of the economic predictions of what might happen. So it's quite possible that corporate behavior itself really isn't going to change, and what you're going to have is a distributional change that the corporate engine is going to keep creating value the same way it was creating it before, but that pie is going to be sliced up differently. If you put workers on the board, then uh, workers are going to get more of that corporate surplus, even if the corporate activity itself doesn't change. Um, now, as an aside, there is some evidence that in Germany, where labor is on the board through their process of so-called corporate co-determination, that you actually do get improved bargaining between labor and management. Um, and you might imagine that this just improves the informational flows between labor and management, because instead of meeting in the form of, say, uh, uh, labor negotiations, which can be contentious, that they're all sitting around the board, the board table, and that's just a better way of negotiating and bargaining. Um, so this might reduce strikes. It might help address workplace issues more effectively. 
And overall, it might actually improve performance. So you might actually get a bigger pie just from improving improving the, the bargaining dynamic that takes place between these constituencies. But that said, uh, in many cases, Jeff, I think you're right, that if all you're doing is swapping out corporate owners without anything more, that shouldn't really affect corporate purpose or corporate activity overall. All right, but before we were talking about an example where you dump mercury into a reservoir, which is obviously you know, a hypothetical, but but you can imagine now maybe a different uh, uh, scenario where if you're putting someone on the board who uses that water, right? So who's harmed by the activity of the corporation, maybe now that's a, a place where you could actually start to affect behavior. And what we're really talking about there is the concept of of a negative externality. So some uh, activity of the corporation imposes a cost on someone out there someplace that the corporation by itself would 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 largely ignore or not take into account when it makes its decision. And if we found that person and put them on the board, now maybe we could actually change the way the board operates. Yeah, that's right. And that's where I think these proposals get really interesting and potentially may fulfill their purpose of causing corporations to serve society better. Um, you know, many of the examples that we think of where the governments failed to put up the right guardrails, where they failed to put up the right regulations, will create externalities. So the pollution dumping would be an example. If the corporation's been dumping mercury on the town of Springfield, putting Springfield representatives on the board will bring that cost into the boardroom. It'll be something that they'll be able to bargain over. And so we might get a an efficient outcome where we had an inefficient outcome before. Um, you know, this, you can think of current or recent real world examples, uh, such as the bailouts that occur seemingly whenever we have a significant financial crisis. Uh, taxpayers end up being on the hook for these bailouts to a large extent. That is an externality, right? So if we have some way of uh, representing those interests on the boards of these financial institutions, maybe we should expect less risky behavior. Similarly, if you have some way of putting a representative for the environment on the board of a company that is putting carbon into the atmosphere, then that corporation itself may start to internalize the cost of the carbon that it's actually pumping out. Now, there's a tough question of who exactly would do that, and you find the Lorax who speaks for the trees and put him on your board of directors, um, that, that raises a whole host of tricky questions about who the right representative for these issues would be. Um, but that said, these things seem to have some promise to them in that, in that regard. What, what I think we're saying here is that we're talking about swapping the need to craft effective regulations sort of in advance of bad behavior, right? So that we 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 have sort of modern and current guardrails at all times. We're going to drop that. And somehow what we're going to do instead is we're going to identify the issues or the sources of externalities uh, that we need to be worried about. And we're going to make sure we get the representatives of those issues onto boards. I mean, that by itself also seems like a challenge, right? Like we know, we talked a lot about what the challenges are with crafting the right regulations, but you have to still have to be pretty forward thinking, it would seem to me, to identify um, all, all of the issues that uh, corporations might drive and make sure 
that they're represented on boards. And, and I guess you'd need some sort of a system to make sure that corporations were uh, were sticking to uh, th- those those issues and and find and sort of discovering them as they arose. I think that's exactly right. That that is the that is the tricky thing here is that we can identify the social need, whether it be something like global warming or pollution or systemic risk. Finding the right representative for that is tricky. There's also an additional problem of making sure that those representatives have adequate skin in the game. Um, And there's a few ways of conceptualizing this. One is that, let's say I'm an environmentalist. And so in order to cause our subject corporation here to internalize environmental welfare a little more, uh, we put me on the board. Well, I may have some preferences for better environmental outcomes, but at the same time, uh, the corporation has some ability to buy me off. Given that I have this now valuable property right of being able to direct corporate activity, I may have some preferences for the environment, but I myself don't internalize everything that could possibly happen to the environment all around the world. So you need to make sure when you're putting people on the board of directors that they are accountable in some way. So the labor representation has some accountability built in, in that the labor representatives that would be appointed under Senator Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act would be elected by labor itself. And so if those labor representatives fail to represent labor's interests, they'll get voted off. And so presumably then they will represent those interests fairly. Again, it's more tricky to figure out how to do that with something like environmental concerns. If I get bought off by the, say, the oil producer whose board I'm serving on, you know, the whales and the trees aren't going to be able to get me fired from my board of directors position. So that is a that is a tricky issue. And, and it's this issue of making sure that there's adequate skin in the game with the representatives that we've now included on the board via our stakeholder capitalism mandates. And, you know, in having skin in the game uh, it can be even trickier, uh, even for stakeholders like labor, where there's an obvious like that people have jobs at the company, for example. But, you know, there's an interesting example with Volkswagen and the diesel scandal, where there's certain commentators who believe that labor had sort of a cozy relationship with management, or at least labor leaders did. And they, one way or another, looked the other way whilst this sort of, you know, emissions avoiding system was being built and implemented. And, you know, maybe because labor was going to get some of the upside from better sales and they'll have more more employees or or better wages. But then when it got discovered, the shareholders ended up being on the hook. So all the fines, for example, were paid by the shareholders, which is traditionally who, who is on the hook for that. And so you ended up with these, I think, maybe twisted incentives where labor had an incentive to not maybe not facilitate, but at least look the other way. Uh, as this was being done, and then didn't actually bear any of the downside. That's right. That's right. And and the basic point is that you can put labor on the board, and you may be able to make the board representatives accountable to labor. But at the end of the day, labor's interests are not the same as society's interests. And so that creates uh, a host of potential problems. One would be this this issue of they might have the upside 
from emissions tampering and not a lot of the downside. And that does seem to be true if you look at, say, the, the way the Accountable Capitalism Act is written. If there were a corporate scandal and the company was restructured as a result of that and comes emerges, say, from Chapter 11, labor would still have its seats on the board. So their interest in the corporation hasn't been extinguished by the fact that the corporation failed, right? That it violated the rules, got punished, and was driven into bankruptcy. Labor emerges with its interests intact. So in that sense, they're not the residual claimant in the way that the shareholders might be. So they might actually have worse incentives than shareholders. And having labor running the firm in that case might lead to more antisocial outcomes than would shareholder governance running the firms. You know, another potential pitfall of, of, of awarding labor a substantial fraction of a corporation is that it, it could result in excessive risk aversion. You know, one of the sort of benefits of a shareholder model is that shareholders are generally considered to have very diverse exposures. So, you know, they have a big diversified portfolio um, because of the law of large numbers. They will be supportive of profitable investment opportunities that come with risk, right? So you're a corporation faced with a great new project. There's some tiny chance that it results in a bankruptcy, um, but as a shareholder, you would like them to participate in that project because it has expected outcomes that are positive and the shareholders can sort of diversify away the downside risk by having uh, lots of these sort of bets going across the corporate universe. Um, but workers obviously work at one company. And so if the workers have a large stake in that company, it's necessarily not diversified and they might actually choose to reject that project. And so if you took this too far, you might end up actually creating disincentives to invest. Yeah. And you'd have to ask, you know, could you have a company like Tesla making cars in a place like Germany where labor is sitting on the board with its somewhat risk averse incentives? You know, we don't really have the ability to run experiments and, and the, 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 the data are always going to be imperfect when making these sorts of comparisons. But there's a pretty good argument to be made that it really is only something like shareholder governance that could lead a company like Tesla to be successful in an environment like the United States. That you just wouldn't be able to roll the dice and take those risks, which in this case seem to have been relatively good risks uh, that are starting to pay off. And it's it's possible that if we move away from shareholder governance uh, and endowing, say, labor with these control rights over firms, that we're going to end up with less of those sorts of good risks as well as less of those bad risks. Well, James, what I take away from this conversation is that there are some issues with the current system, and maybe a stakeholder-based system would address some of them. But implementing that in reality presents many of its own hurdles, a lot of which are not acknowledged by the supporters of a change. Anyone interested in learning more about this topic can read James and my recent research on it entitled The Promise of Diversity, Inclusion, and Punishment in Corporate Governance. That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights on this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com/cib.